Hello, and welcome to episode 115 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and joining me for this episode is Jeff McFarland of HiddenGameOfTennis.com. Hello, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? All is well. Um, Jeff is joining me to talk in part, maybe in whole, we'll see, about my tennis 128 listing, particularly Jim Courier, who came in at 107. Um, Jeff is one of the very, very elite few who got a preview of my 128 rankings before I started publishing them this year. And he had the opportunity, I guess that's the word for it, the burden, I don't know, of of um, telling me where they looked wrong, where I might improve them. And he and I did not entirely see eye to eye on Jim Courier. I've moved him a little bit. He was originally ranked um, closer to the bottom of the 128, partly because of Jeff's comments, partly because of um, some algorithm changes I made. But I think maybe that Jeff still disagrees and we'll dig into that. So th- there's a lot of a lot of technical things we can talk about, a lot of general things we can talk about. But let's start with Jim Courier and Michael Chang. This is the only spoiler we're going to give in this episode. But the spoiler is that Michael Chang, who was pretty much contemporaneous with Jim Courier um, and Agassi and Sampras, Michael Chang is coming up on the list. He is ranked higher than Jim Courier. I think a lot of people would disagree. And let's start with that, Jeff. Do you think that's right that Michael Chang had a better career, was a better player, is a more of an all-time great, whatever, however you want to put it together. Uh, Do you think Michael Chang is superior to Jim Courier? (laughs) Well, so I'm I'm going to say two things about that. One is since we originally had the conversation about Jim Courier, I have come closer to your position than I was when we originally had the conversation, but not so close that I think Michael Chang was better. Um, Now, again, I have some, and so the second thing I want to say is that uh, I have a little bit of a built-in bias in that uh, after Michael Chang underhanded served against uh, against Lendl, uh, he was dead to me. So no, uh, I think really, yeah, th- yeah. There's a there's a built in bias there uh, that that I just want to disclose uh, in advance. But you know, let, let you, me ask. I'm, you- I'm sorry, but my entire 2,500 word essay about Michael Chang will be about that serve. Yeah, so it'll be the only of the 128 I might not read. <laughs> <laughs> Well, or or maybe just that paragraph. Maybe if you could just foreshadow it in a previous paragraph, then I'll know when to skip. Okay. Well, just, just I'm glad that we zeroed right in on the difference here because that serve is that serve is everything. Uh, it, it's something. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe it is everything. Uh, it's just a oh, is it a, a good everything or a bad everything? Uh, yeah. So, well, uh, I don't know how often or if y- you've talked about this specifically on the. The podcast, I know obviously it's in your on your blog as part of the introduction to the 128. But um maybe it's worth, you know, reminding what the algorithm is for for putting these players on the on the list and the order in which they appear. Well, the the algorithm is there's three parts. One is that I take the, the player's peak ELO rating, so that the one single moment where their ELO rating was the highest. Then I take a a five-year ELO rating, which is their their five best years. And as a first pass, I used year-end rankings. Uh, When I went to review them a little closer, I didn't just look at year-end rankings because that that disadvantages someone like Courier, actually, because some of Courier's peaks were on clay. They came in the middle of the season. So 
if you if you set year end at June 1st instead of December 31st, then Courier ends up being better. And I did take that into account. So there's this, this notion of a five-year peak and then a, a total career value, which is how well they played above a certain pretty good threshold over their entire career. So someone who has a good but not great 15-year career gets more credit than someone with a good but not great eight-year career. So Courier gets dinged a little bit there, actually, because he didn't have a super long career. But um, what's interesting, and I'm, I'm guessing this is why you wanted to clarify this, is that to me, that feels like a pretty peak-oriented algorithm to take three components and have one of them be purely a player's single best rating. But it ends up, I think, leaning more towards players with good careers and undervaluing those with a single very high peak, at least compared to what tennis fans have in mind, because tennis fans seem to be so influenced by how a player played at their very, very best. Well, and I'm assuming that the reason, at least one of the reasons for that is that at the level of player that we're talking about, the peak ELO is going to be fairly similar, right? I mean, um, I don't know what, I don't have right in front of me what Courier's peak ELO is. I see that uh, Chang's is 2127, I think. I don't know if you have uh, Courier right in front of you, but Courier's got to be pretty close to that. Are you using uh, my numbers or your numbers? Your numbers, your numbers, okay. yeah. And are you using the ones on my Tennis Abstract pages or something else I gave you? Yeah, the one on uh, on Tennis Abstract. Okay, and that that's another thing to be a little careful with, since I, as I mentioned, the year end, because those are the year end ELOs. And Courier, for instance, his peak ELO is quite a bit higher than his best okay. year end, because I think it was, I think maybe it was 92, actually, but... One year he had a really great, uh, a really great clay campaign, and he and then he did not follow it up well. So he ended up having a peak in June or something. Yeah, well, it, he had that Australian French combo, which he right. basically did, I think, twice, right? Um, yeah, in this in 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 the same year. In fact, he may might be the only person who would. Well, maybe not. He's not not the only, but because maybe Djokovic did that uh, Australian French combo, but I don't know if he did it more than once in the same year. Anyway same season, I should say, I don't, I don't, but uh, yeah, but I mean, well, so I was looking at the year ends, but the year ends are almost identical, but uh, I think Chang, you know, based on the algorithm, obviously, I think that slightly longer career at a higher level uh, appears to put him ahead. Um, And one of the things about career that's, that's kind of interesting is that uh, he had a great 95, but then he kind of, he fell way off in 96. I mean, just way off. And he never really got back to the top, top level. I mean, he was a good player, of of course, but uh, fell off real quickly after that. And Chang's uh, denouement was a a little bit more gradual, uh, which allowed him to play longer at a higher level. Uh, Yeah, so I, I understand why... Chang comes out ahead and we're not going to say how far ahead he is. Uh, but I, I am influenced by my personal feeling about that underhand serve. And I, this is an era in which I watched a lot of tennis and I just never really got the feeling that, that Chang was, he always seemed to be a little bit on the outside of what you might call the big three or four back then. Yeah. And that, it, and, and it is strange to me, like it, 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 it's obvious when you think back on a time period, you remember, like you're saying, I, I mean, I was watching tennis then too. And my first instinct would have been that Courier was superior to Chang, even if I loved the underhand serve. Um, 
And then if, if, there's a lot of different ways you can crunch the numbers and Chang will come out ahead. I mean, obviously, if you, if you tweak them enough, like if you look for an algorithm that will put Courier ahead, you can find one. Um, but if you look at longevity at all, then then Chang ends up winning. I mean, just looking at, at even the ATP rankings, Courier only had four year-end top 10 ATP rankings. Uh, and I guess five in ELO, but only the four in, in, in on the ATP scale. And that's that's not a very good career. I mean, if, if you're just looking at that one metric, um, but I don't think most fans care about that. So I, I, I'm, I wonder, like, should in general, should I be focused even more on the peak? Like, if you were building a metric from scratch here, would you focus on on the peak even more than I have? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I think the whole idea of the I mean, the algorithm is not manipulated to put people in any particular spot, right? It's, and, and, and generally I agree with the algorithm. I might not agree with the, the results, but that, that might be, again, that, that builds in my, my own biases. The whole point of the algorithm is that we try to construct something that will, that, that seems fair, seems reasonable, and then you get the results and whatever the results are, it probably is going to, it, in one way or another, is going to challenge what your previous thinking was. Um, there are going to be other people on your list going forward uh, that I would not put where you put them or the algorithm put them. It, they might not even come out from the algorithm where you would have put them. I mean, that's oh, not, definitely not. Right. right. Yeah. And, and we've already seen, I think, perhaps your most controversial ones have been the Vavrinka Nishikori split where people got pretty incensed by that. And I think one of the things that, that, that indicates is uh, apart from the fact that we already know that not everybody's going to be happy it, is that there's every, there's just no way to account for some of the reasons that we feel like one player is ahead of another. Like well, I was just thinking about, well, you know, given what you just told me about the algorithm and Chang and Courier and the length of their careers and so forth, why in my head do I still not think of Chang as a better player? And it isn't just because I'm, I'm, I'm only sort of kidding about the underhanded serve, but Chang had no signature shot, at least not that I recall. I mean, he had a good backhand, obviously. And he had a lot of, a lot of talent in various ways, including hard work, the same way Courier did. But Courier was in some ways, a, a pioneer. He sort of took that Lindell inside-out forehand, the same way Lindell took the inside-out forehand a little bit beyond what I watched Connors do. Courier really took it to the next level. You might even say he took it to the level that it's at right now as a signature shot in tennis, um, which back then, it, it really wasn't. I mean, it, it was a shot, but it wasn't a shot at that level. It wasn't a shot that you know people would just run around into the doubles alley to hit. You wouldn't build your game around it, right? I mean, that's no, that's you wouldn't build your game. Around it. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, you can think of extremes now like Jack sock and we all say what we say about his, his game and, and, and so forth. But, but you've got Del Potro, you've got all sorts of clay players. You got to, you've got Nadal. Um, and so career in my mind, part of the reason he sticks out is that he seemed like a pioneer and it was in a, in a very impactful way. And I can't think of Chang that way. I think of Chang as like a guy who was like working hard, sitting a little bit on the outside, 
challenging these players who appeared to have, well, they certainly had more uh, height and strength. It seemed like, although Chang's quads were like uh, sequoias, but uh, he, he just didn't knock you out with any particular, with any particular shot, except the underhanded serve. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's been a couple of years since I've watched or charted any Chang matches, but I, I do remember thinking last time I did that he was hitting an awful lot of big inside out forehands as well. So he, I mean, he wasn't the trendsetter in the way that Courier was. You, I, I don't think you, you would read articles about Chang's inside out forehand, but if, uh, the name you didn't mention among contemporary or close to contemporary players who fits that mold is David Ferrer. And Chang definitely seems like the precursor to David Ferrer where he, he didn't build his game around the inside out forehand in the way that Courier did, but boy, he hit a lot of them. He would work, he, he would run around them to hit them and he would put a hundred percent of what he had into that shot. So I don't know whether there was something about the arrow, whether it was the, the fact that the racket technology advanced to the point where players could just, it was worth it to run around forehands and just cream them inside out. But it was maybe it was in the air a little bit. Well, that that's an interesting question with with Chang. I mean, so Chang was uh, using it as a setup shot. He had a much better backhand than Courier did, and so he could he could you know manipulate opponents around the court the same way that that Ferrer did. And I think that's a, a very good comp. Uh, but yeah, that the racket technology had sort of advanced then the same way it's advanced advanced since then. Chang. Uh, you know, I, I think he he was just not as offensive minded with that shot. He just had a longer uh, a longer point construction in his head. And I think you mentioned this in the article that, you know, there, that Courier was sometimes accused of not really even thinking about things. He was just wailing on the ball, which is probably a little bit true and probably a little bit not true. But uh, I think of Courier almost as like almost like a plus one player. He didn't have a big serve, but man, he was looking to end that point. And his inside out forehand, I think, was motivated not just by winning the point, but because he didn't have the option to win the point on his backhand, at least when he was a young player. If, if you look at that picture that you included on the, on your, uh, on your, in your article of his backhand, his left hand is like a full left-handed Western grip. It's way underneath that racket. And I don't, I don't know how many uh, listeners out there play tennis, but if you have a Western grip and you can see just by watching players on tour with it, with those Western grips, you have really got to follow through on, on those shots. You really got to come through. It's hard on a two-hander if your hand is all the way underneath to come far enough through. And I think early enough or early in his career, he wasn't following through enough on that shot. And so it was a sort of just a get it back backhand. Um, I think he worked on that over his career. And I got it to the point where he would follow through such that when he was facing somebody like Sampras, even though he wasn't super successful in terms of wins, he could at least dip the ball over the net and make the volley harder for Sampras. Now, Sampras was such a good volleyer that, you know, it, it, it didn't work all the time, but it certainly turned his backhand into something, I wouldn't call it a weapon, but something that, you know, had some effectiveness but I'm not sure that was true early on. And so I think by necessity, he was having to run around and hit those forehands that of course you wouldn't say about Chang because Chang had a better backhand from the, 
beginning. So his motivation for the forehand, apart from just setting up the shot, was that he didn't need it. I mean, except as a strategy, he didn't need to finish a point that way. And so, uh, I, you know, you've talked uh, to Carl about this many times, uh, Carl Bialik, uh, that, you know, players tend to hit the shots that are most effective. I mean, we spent a lot of time, you know, analyzing whether they should have done this or they should have done that. And that's fair. That's what sports uh, analytics is. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, players know what shots work for them and, and, and which are the, the, the most effective. Uh, and so I think that, you know, Courier just adapted to a particular weakness that he had, especially as a, a younger player. Uh, and, and that accounts a lot for why he played the way he played, of course. And then, uh, and then Chang didn't have that same motivation. It's, it's interesting you, you make that point about the backhand, because in that regard, Michael Chang might be a little bit more of a, of a pathbreaker for the way the game is played now, because almost everyone runs around their backhand. I mean, maybe not, I don't know what, what level, what percentage I'm talking about here, but everybody does it to some extent, except for someone like Benoit Pair. But let's say 80% of the men on tour will shade to their, their backhand side so they can hit more forehands. And some of them are, like you say, like Jack Sock, where they do it because the backhand is, is way worse and they want as many forehands as possible. But some of it's because you can create more angles, you, you can do more damage with, uh, with a forehand than you can with a backhand, even if your backhand is a slightly better shot. I think, I think I read this in Jack Kramer's book. So this idea is like a half century old, at least, that you can, it just opens up more, more, op- more options to hit from the forehand. And if Michael Chang was doing it with Michael Chang's backhand, then I mean, it seems like there had to be something to it unless, you know, Michael Chang was doing something stupid, which seems unlikely. And it seems like there's more players now who they're hitting more inside out forehands, they're running around their forehand more uh, as a strategy to just eke a little bit more out of, out of every shot than to cover for a weak, a weak wing like Jim Courier did. So I don't know. I mean, I might be grasping at straws a little bit here, but there, there may be two different trends that intersect to some extent. Well, it may come back to the equipment too, because uh, it isn't just about, I mean, when you're pulling your opponent out of position, your opponent is only out of position if they don't have time to recover, which has something to do with angle, but also, and, and has something to do with how hard you hit the ball, but also how hard they hit the ball. So they get to the ball, if they hit a looper back to you, because that's all the racket will do on a tiny little wooden racket, then they're going to be able to recover to the center of the court while their ball's in the air. If you hit a better angle with more pace, then they try to hit the ball with more pace coming back. They have more, they have less time to get to recover to uh, another position. So, yeah, I mean, all these things obviously are connected, uh, but uh, but I, you know, in my head, I, I can see, you know, Chang hitting those shots, but I also see when I think inside, uh, inside out forehands, uh, back then I think of Lindell and then sort of Courier taking it to the next level. I remember the first time I saw uh, Lindell hit it, uh, I was like, what is that? I mean, huh. I'd never seen, I'd never seen a shot like that. I don't mean that I'd never seen an inside out forehand. I, I mean, cause Connors hit them. Connors hit inside out everything. Um, it was such a weird shot, I thought, but I never saw anybody just like pummel it like that. Uh, and, and so he, he seemed like a freak at the time. And then of course, you know, 
career. And like I said, I thought career took it, took it to another level. And then, you know, it's not unusual at all. Now I know that uh, on a lot of these things where you, you talk on the podcast about if you transported the player forwards or maybe backwards in an era era, how would they perform? I think uh, you talk with Carl about this with Stan. Uh, if you moved him back uh, in time, how would he perform well, with Courier? Like if you moved him forward, I don't know that he would perform that well because everybody does what he does. Yeah. You know um, that his, his niche is not a niche anymore. And so uh, on the other hand, you have to take into account the, the point that you made in, in the article, which is that, you know, he would have found a way to do something because he was just so competitive. Yeah. It feels like he would have, he would have learned Spanish because he would have been so competitive on the South American <laughs> challenger circuit. Yeah. It's hard for me to see him reach, you know, n- number one, if you, if you transported him because his niche was negated. I mean, he would have, he would have been a good player in, in any era. In this is not exactly your point, but I, I, I wanted to bring this up and it's a bit of a segue that, um he he won his slams in 91 and 93 i think so it's i don't think we typically think of that as a weak era because there were so many great players around because edberg and becker were still playing lendl was still playing uh, and chang agassi sampras were already there there are other players like even isevich and steak who were who were there as well probably a few others i'm not even mentioning but at the same time i wonder if was that a bit of a lull? I mean, Edberg and Becker and Lendl were were reaching the end. I mean, they were after their peaks and Sampras's peak came later. Agassi was playing really well, but inconsistently. Chang wasn't a number one. So is, do you think there's anything to that, that the early 90s were a lull or maybe even a bit of a micro weak era? Well, I think, uh, I don't know if I would say generally the early 90s were, but I would say that that perhaps the points at which courier shined through might've been sort of slight dips uh, in what otherwise I think of as a, as a pretty strong era. Um, Yeah. So I I think he did. I may be the word for it is luck a little bit. He he, he had a little bit of luck at the times or he took advantage of, you know, of maybe luck isn't the right word. He took advantage of some points in space where, he could poke through and shine a little bit given what his particular skill set uh, was. I mean, I think, you know, he was, he's a contemporary of, of Agassi, but you have to also have to remember that Agassi sort of had two careers. He had the young, you know, what I think of as the Canon Eos rebel career uh, in which he was a, a very good player. And then he had the comeback after, you know, falling to, I forget what the number is, some terribly low ranking number, and and then he was a had a, a tremendous second career and Courier was not part of that at all. Courier mm-hmm. was gone by the time of the second career. So um, and memory wise, I tend to think of Agassi more with respect to that second career uh, than the first one. I don't know why. Maybe just recency. Uh, and like you said, some of the other guys were fading a bit. So yeah. Uh, I think there's some, well, I think the algorithm is, is telling us that's true, right. Through the, through the ELO process. Um, it isn't just that career had a relatively short, high level career. It's that he didn't always get the the big ELO bumps because 
some of his competition. I mean, he, he was playing Mooster um, like on clay a lot, I assume, right? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure how much they played each other. I think I, I, I've been researching so many players that they're starting to blend together a little bit in my head, but I think he beat Mooster on clay once. And that was at the time when Mooster had the nickname, the King of clay. Um, yeah. And it, uh, I also think of courier courier also was not very good on grass, but I, for some reason, I, I guess because of the French and because the, the RG, uh, you know, Roland Garris is always ranked higher, I guess, in my head and usually throughout history than the Australian open, I think of him courier as a bit of a clay court player, but I think he was every bit as good, maybe even a little better on hard courts when I see the actual numbers. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, Just to follow up on what I was speculating about before he beat Mooster three times in a row on clay. Um, Yeah. I see he was twice in 92 and once in 93, two of those at, at Roland Garros. So one of those was in a title run. I mean, then Mooster was not at the top of his game at that point because when they, when they played 93 courier was seated second and Mooster was seated 15. So it wasn't Mooster's best moment, but Mooster was the King of clay and that's got to count for something, but, but I mean, he certainly wouldn't have played as much on clay. I mean, that was still a time where you could, I think you could control your surface preferences a little bit more than, than you can, now i think that was still true in the early 90s and courier would have chosen to play more american events is that does that seem right to you too yeah i think that's right although it's certainly not as as true as it is for americans these days <laughs> right it, it, it seems like uh, uh it's hard to find americans who can win anywhere but uh the the u.s anymore um and so i wouldn't i wouldn't put him in that category i'm looking right, here at his head to heads like i guess there's he's got what mm, about 10 people he played at least 10 times. Some of the names we've mentioned already, uh, but also uh, Chesnikov, Mark Woodford, which is uh, interesting. Wayne Ferreira, not a name I would have come up with. And Mark Rosset. Uh, and then, and then the people that we've uh, named as his principal rivals. So, I mean, you know, Chang was his most frequent opponent followed by Sampras. And then it's, you know, it's not the most, uh, it's not a hall of fame list after that. Yeah. I, you know, um, so yeah, I, I, I think the algorithm is pointing out the point that you're making and maybe that's not something you'd see without the algorithm because, you, it, because, because of who the players are that were in the era, you lump them all together and assume they're all peaking at the same time. And if Agassi was playing, he was peak Agassi. And if Sampras was playing, he was peak Sampras, but obviously that's not true on a, on a year to year basis. And so the, algorithm allows you to sort of extract the the detail out of that and look at it in a more granular way that is the idea yeah i mean another factor with courier is that i I think his career total was 23 titles which is it's a nice career but in terms of the people i'm looking at for this tennis 128 it's it's not very many there aren't going to be very many people on this list with fewer than 25 career titles and partly that's because of a short career but even within his peak years he didn't win a lot of titles he just either he peaked at exactly the right time with those four slams or he he got a little bit lucky with some of the draws i I don't want to push that too far because he he did beat good players in those um in in those slam finals i mean agassi roland garros edberg at the australian open edberg well edberg at both australian opens right and then corda at the 92 french open so that's not the strongest opponent but i mean that's that's a pretty good lineup beating Edberg twice on hard courts. That was when Edberg was 
ranked in the top two. So I probably, I might be overstating the case about Edberg being after his peak there. Um, but Courier didn't really back it up. And one of the things that I'm, we talked about this a little bit um, via email when, when we were, when I was dealing with the, the repercussions from Vavrink and Ishikori is like exactly how much weight should we give the slams? Like, I, I, I know you're, you're kind of in my corner here where you're ready to like build a good algorithm and accept whatever the algorithm spits out. But I mean, there's still like the little voice in the back of my head that says, this guy has four grand slams. A lot of people to come on this list do not have four grand slams. And that counts for something. I mean, it, it's not, it's not a be all end all, but maybe it counts for more than I'm giving credit for when I'm doing ELO as my variations of ELO as my only metric that I'm kind of ignoring grand slams entirely, except for the fact that, you know, people who win grand slams tend to get an ELO boost from it. Um, the, the best criticism I can think of for my approach is that players think now and have always thought that the majors were the most important. So they're targeting them, they're planning for them, they're building their fitness to peak at that point. They care the most at that point. I mean, it's, it's, it's their goal. So, I mean, it, do you think that, is that a good reason to, to weight the slams more because it's what the players themselves care about? Well, that's what the, yeah, I, I, I can see the argument. I, I think though that, uh, and, and it depends on which tours we're talking about, but I'm thinking like seventies WTA or Virginia slams or whatever you want to call it at the time. Uh, I, I do think the players obviously wanted to to win the slams and those were important. They also wanted to make a living. So they, they played a lot of weird tournaments. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of those, um, we think of that, or I think of that kind of golden era with Navratilova and uh, Everett and, and, and Groff when they were all still really playing well. If you look at some of the actual tournaments they were playing, they weren't playing each other a lot outside the grand slams they were far flung places at different different tournaments uh so you know i don't think their sole motivation i mean i part of the motivation of winning the grand slams wasn't just the trophy it was it was to make a living at least on the women's side and this is a the tennis uh, 128 is is a co-ed here so um yeah i wouldn't want to overweight that i think what I think is that voice in the back of your head is really the voice of the public who who puts a lot more focus on maybe certainly the general public, almost entirely their focus on grand slams. So it's very hard for someone to see. I'll just use Chang as an example, since it's convenient that, you know, Chang, what he won one, I think. Right. And yes. lost three finals. Yeah. And, uh, and he had what I, I guess you'd call it seven, seven masters level um, and career had five and then Chang won a, a handful more. Well, actually quite a few more lower level tournaments. Yeah. I think he won almost uh, 50 titles in his career. So roughly double Courier's career title hall. Yeah. And so, yeah, oh, no, I'm, I mean, over, I'm overstating that 30, 36. So I don't want to go too far, but yeah, okay. but that's, yeah. I mean, but, but it's, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it is kind of hard to look at Courier winning four and losing three slams and Chang winning one and losing three and then Chang some, somehow coming out ahead. Uh, I, and I'm sure that that plays into my built-in uh, bias there because I'm 
I'm no different than any, anyone else. I don't remember Chang's other 27 titles, right? <laughs> the ones I remember are the ones that the finals he played in. Um, and it's not because I didn't watch any of the others. I probably did watch some, but I also probably didn't watch most of them because they weren't televised. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible to get away from that. But to me, that's the point of the algorithm. Uh, I mean, you could, you could wait it more, but now you're, uh, you know, you're sort of uh, letting the little voice back there uh, dictate the algorithm. I think the algorithm is, is fine like it is. And I, and I don't think the algorithm has to, has to solve the problem or that the, in my opinion, that the tennis 128 has to be quote, right. It has to be plausible. Yeah. Uh, which is why you sent it to me for a preview uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and, uh, and after that, I think it's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's, you know, people are allowed to have different opinions about things and to argue one way or another. And you can always pick out the stats that make sense and, uh, to you, uh, or to anyone else and, and, and move people up or down. And some of the distinctions that are being made, uh, in the tennis 128 are obviously going to be, uh, very minor, and uh, it's it's no different than arguing about who the best ever was, which I'm sure <laughs> will will create a firestorm when we get there. Yeah, people are going to be really ticked off when they see Novak Djokovic come along at number 43. <laughs> it's going to be a rough day. Yeah, we we talk about Chang being ahead of career, but you didn't mention that he was number one. Oh yeah, well you weren't supposed to say anything about that. <laughs> yeah, you told me no spoilers. Yeah, uh, uh, that's yeah. A, that's a pretty big spoiler, but I mean. Number of underhand serves in Grand Slam semifinals and finals is it's the fourth component of the algorithm. So everybody else really pales in comparison. Um, Yeah, I mean, one one thing I I recently wrote this to someone else in another conversation about this project that uh, if if I manage to convey one subliminal message through this whole thing is that it's not all about the slams like I and I I posted a when we last time we were talking about this I posted a poll on Twitter and I asked people how much more important a slam final was compared to a non-slam non well a non-slam match between the same two players and to the extent there was a an average on Twitter people people seem to like the five times more important um, I mean, it's, it's, t- it's a Twitter poll, so I don't want to put too much weight on it, but that was, that was one of my four choices. People liked five times more important and that that's fine. Um, I, I understand that psychologically. I would also understand a number a lot higher than that, but in, it, one thing I care a lot about is estimating how good tennis players are at tennis. I mean, it, it, it seems like we forget that sometimes, but that's the whole point of ELO is to take all the information we possibly can throw it into the meat grinder and see what it tells us about how good the players are. And I have, I have experimented with tennis ego ELO algorithms more than probably almost anybody else. And one of the things I've tried many times is by is putting more weight on grand slam matches or putting more weight on matches towards the end of grand slams. Cause it's, it seems like just anecdotally, it seems like you find out more about a player then, but if you look at whether whether doing that makes the algorithm more predictive, it doesn't. So if you give me Courier versus Edberg at the Australian Open in a final and Courier wins and you give me Edberg defeats Courier at, you know, a 250 in Stockholm, I guess Stockholm was a Masters and so it's a bad example, but at a 250 or equivalent, 
then the algorithm thinks those two results are worth about the same. And over history, that's about right. And the fact, I mean, thinking those terms, the fact that Courier only has 19 titles on top of his slams, that's, that's a pretty big strike against him. Um, not to say his career wasn't great, but compared to some of these other guys, it, it, it pales in that category. So, I mean, that's the counter argument to my argument that I laid out before. So I invited you on to listen to me argue with myself. Congratulations, Jeff. Um, but that's hopefully some people take that away that, you know, the fact that someone has three slams like Bobrinka or four slams like Courier, it doesn't end the argument against anyone who has zero or one slams. No, and, and the year this is always going to be an uphill battle to some degree. Uh, sports sports fans um, either have a proclivity, and they certainly have more proclivities now than they did thirty years ago. But uh, for diving deep and really kind of understanding where it comes from, what what I find is that there are people who are open to things like ELO or advanced analytical type things up until the point that they disagree with it. And then they kind of back off of it. And what you, in my opinion, just kind of have to let yourself go and say, look, you know, this is, this is, you have to get behind it. I mean, one of the things that I think makes it probably easier for you to understand the position that you just espoused is that, is that, you know, how it works. You've done the work behind it. You've, tried dozens of things, if not more than dozens. Well, I guess you can't be more than dozens, right? Uh, for this particular variation, though, there's yeah. only, only so many variations. Well, more than dozens could, I, I guess, still take us to infinity. So I don't, I, yeah. Um, but so it's one thing to say, well, yeah, I like ELO. I like this idea. I like the things that Jeff says, you know, but then if you don't really understand how it works, it's easy then to let your own sort of uh, preconceived ideas about a player or something uh, stop you when the metric disagrees with those uh, those preconceived notions. Whereas if you're behind it, I mean, I find myself obviously thinking the same thing. I mean, this is like a human thing to do is that you run into a number and you're like, wait a second, it's the same thing I'm doing here with Chang and, and Courier. And it just doesn't feel right to me, but I understand where it comes from. And I understand why it's not an unreasonable position to, to have Chang ahead uh, algorithm or otherwise. I mean, you could probably have, you've, you've tried several algorithms. I know you have for this project alone. And, and I don't think Chang came out behind Courier in any of them. Yeah, I don't uh, think so. I don't, I, I don't remember every, every list, but you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the the Bill James maxim. Maybe we, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I quoted it last time we did a pod, podcast together. That you know, the sign for him of a good metric is if 90% of it looks like you expect it to look, and the other 10 is is surprises. I'm, pr- I'm probably not getting it quite right, but something like that. And that's kind of what I was going for. Is like I, I uh, some of the variations of an all time great algorithm didn't reach that 90% threshold, and they had all kinds of crazy stuff that didn't look right at all. And I think, I mean, people have to tell me if they agree with this by the end of the year when we see the whole list, but I think that's about right, that most of this list is going to be how you expect, expect it to look. But then every once in a while, there will be Nishikori over Avrinka or Chang over Courier or Chang over Djokovic. And you'll think that this is, this is nuts. And I, I think baseball fans are more prepared to say, the other 90% looks good. Therefore, I accept this metric. 
uh, and I'll, I'll think harder about the other 10%. Whereas tennis fans haven't had enough experience with any metrics at all that are giving them much value as fans. So no matter how good the other 90% looks, they see the one that's wrong in their eyes and they think, well, okay, well, this whole thing is trash. This is wrong. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. In fact, when, when you sent me the preliminary list, I know you had already refined the algorithm to a certain point. Otherwise you wouldn't have sent it to me. And my standard for looking at it wasn't, Hey, is should number 17 be number 16? It was, you know, within five spots, is this plausible? Or as you got further down the list, um, you know, within 10 spots or, you know, which things kind of just poked out as that is the, you know, as that 10% or maybe it was 15% at that point and needed to be kind of massaged until it was met that 90, 10 standard. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the whole point. And, and, you know, one of the great things about most, most sports and particularly baseball is just the, the arguments about which players are, are best. And, and so I think one of the possible resistances to uh, analytics is that people think that you are trying to tell them who the best player is and close the door on that and say, look, I, you know, I, I've got, uh, I've got this algorithm and I put this person at number one and that's who's number one. Uh, and, and that's not really what's happening. I mean, it is, one version of a universe uh, and it may be the most common version with among several different algorithms. But I still think that the whole idea is, is really just kind of education and uh, uh, illuminating things that may not otherwise be obvious. That's the whole point of the analytical process. Uh, so, yeah, so I, 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 I agree with all that. I thought the article about career was particularly interesting um, just to get back to him um, with respect to the, the Sampras tactics, because again, we've, we're talking about ELO here and how, how the tennis 128 works, but that's something that came out of a, a separate analytical part of this, which is the, the mesh charting project. And that's where you got the, the underlying data for that. Uh, and it was, I, I thought it was really interesting that, uh, Sampras, uh, had, had figured that out. And what immediately came to mind is, I don't know how many of uh, the listeners get any Paul Anacone commentary via tennis channel or any other outlets. But, you know, the thing that he consistently hammers, if you watch him enough, you feel like he's coached you is uh, that he wants his players to pick on the other players best shot a little bit. Uh, and so that's the first thing I thought of when I saw that Sampras was, was picking on uh, careers forehand a little bit. Uh, Courier's return was not, you know, stellar. I was looking at some of this separately and it looks like to me that he was a pretty average returner on first serves, but did most of his damage on second serve returns where he had time to run around and could pummel the ball. But, uh, you know, your article points out that Sampras had a lot of success even on the second serve doing that. Granted, Sampras' second serve was pretty good. Yeah, but I mean, so was Edberg's. Yeah. I mean, so it was even you know, so it was Michael Steaks. There were a lot of good first and second serves in that era. Yeah, um, but Courier was was damaging uh, to to a, a high degree second serves. Yeah, um, and you know what's interesting is that the other thing that's interesting is that while uh, while Courier didn't have a big serve, 
he was so good at that at that plus one that he had a, a ex- extremely high uh, first serve service point one percentage. I mean, it you know like a half standard deviation above uh, the top one hundreds mean. So for a guy with like not a big serve, it was a, I, I was pretty impressed by that number and how he was able to defend that, you know, what was otherwise a pedestrian serve. I mean, he knew how to serve. I think he was a smart server, but those uh, service point percentages, sometimes are, you just have to remind ourselves they're not all, always about the serve itself. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is, is getting back to the, the era that he, he and Chang are, are coming up at that time where, there's a big jump in racket technology in the eighties and they're the first generation to grow up with those rackets. So they, they've been practicing most of their lives with rackets that, you know, a, a, maybe Stefan Edberg as a kid didn't have, or Boris Becker as a kid didn't have, even though there's only a few year difference there. And I've always, I think there's a, there's a pretty good paper about this that is sort of like paradigm shifts on in, in tennis being associated with, um, with when the technological breakthroughs came in racket technology and Chang to me, you could always partly explain Chang by that, that it doesn't make any sense that this, I think he was 16 when he won Roland Garros or how, however young he was, he's super young, very small. So, so unorthodox that he's hitting an underhand serve um, in the semifinal of a grand slam. Part of that's the work ethic. Part of that's that he's so fast. He has a good backhand. You can partly explain it, but, it feels like you have to you have to accept that some of it's just good timing that he had this advantage over the field because he was from this new generation. So we were talking earlier about Chang and Courier both setting the tone for how players use that inside out back inside out forehand. Um, it feels like the plus one emerged a little bit from that too. I mean, am I maybe I'm pushing this too far? But I mean, are there players that come to mind who were who were using the plus one tactic? as much as Courier was a generation or two earlier? Ooh. Um, only, maybe only out of necessity uh, to the extent, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about all these players, but maybe, um, maybe Roscoe Tanner, to the okay. extent he wasn't getting an ace uh, when the ball came back. I don't think he wanted to be involved in a lot of long rallies. That's the only one that I would say, you know, on the spur of the moment might, might spring to mind, but I don't know if the, I don't know if the data supports that. Chang also played with a, he had a longer racket, right? Didn't he play with a, like a 27 and a quarter inch racket? Beats me. Could be. Yeah. I think his racket had an extra quarter inch length, which I think is the maximum you're allowed to play with. And what I've always heard about that. So obviously it gives you more leverage, but you actually have to be technically more sound to use it. Um, I was in a, a Dick Sporting Goods one time, and someone, which is a, a sporting goods chain here in the the U.S. And a mother was looking for a racket for like her eight year old, and there was a, a longer racket there. And she asked the random Dick's, uh, you know, associate uh, who was stocking hats which racket she should buy. And there's a lot of there's a couple other funny stories that I won't bore you with about this, but the one was I should get, she said to him, I should get the longer racket, right? Because longer is better in a racket. And he goes, oh yeah, definitely. Your eight-year-old needs the long racket. <laughs> I'm like, that eight-year-old is not going to be able to play with a long racket. He's never played tennis before. 
Um, so it's, it's actually kind of an achievement, you know, to be able to play with that longer racket, but if you can play with it, it does give you a, a, a little bit, a greater advantage. I don't even know if you could get a longer racket in a, in a wood version. Maybe you could, I, I I'm not going to profess to know that, uh, but I'm not aware of players before that being able to get the extra leverage out of a racket, especially a graphite one. And I guess that the players who would have adopted more of a plus one approach, they were serving volleyers before. I mean, certainly Edberg or Becker could have been a plus one player in the same way that, I don't know, Matteo Berrettini is now. Um, but it's made more sense to serve in volley then than it does now to play the way Matteo Berrettini does. Right. And then many, all these things are connected, of course, because yeah. then you, you, you stop where you peel back your serve and volley once the racket technology is so good that the returners are uh, getting the ball back too quickly. And then you, you need another strategy. So it's, it's just part of the evolution. Who do you think if um, I was trying to think of who the best comp for courier is among sort of the players in the last five or six years. Berrettini's not bad. I'm partly thinking that because I just said his name, but (laughs) I mean, if, if you're thinking of, players who are particularly reliant on a forehand, but still have a really big weapon there, maybe aren't, I mean, Berrettini is probably not as good a mover relative to the field as Courier was, but I'm I'm not sure that's, that might not even be true. I'm not sure if Courier was a great mover. He was just fast and tireless. Do you, did you have anyone in mind? Yeah, I, I struggle with that. Um, the, the first one that came to mind just because of the forehand was uh, Del Potro. And I guess the problem with Del Potro and with Berrettini both is that they're not similarly sized to Courier. So it's kind of hard to put them in, this, in the same bucket. But, you know, I, I thought that Del Potro's, his, his backhand was pretty pedestrian, but his forehand was fantastic. Of course, he had a better serve. Uh, but I always felt with Delpo that he didn't have quite the serve that you thought he should have for a guy his size. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so I don't, I I've, I've done these, uh, these various attempts at SIM scores. So, uh, Bill James in baseball a long time ago had come up with this, uh, this toy stat to find out which players were similar to which other players in baseball history, um, which is kind of a fun thing to do. And it's such a, a staple of, baseball statistics that on most baseball or like on baseballreference.com, the SIM scores for all the players are, are there. You have to scroll down to the bottom of the page. So I've tried different ways of doing that with um, tennis players, some of which I've published on the, on the blog and some, some not. Um, And one of them is just to plug in the base stats and, and, and come up with a a list. So I'm going to tell you who came up on the list when I plugged in the base stats. Now, keep in mind, this is uh, the base stats don't, adjust for anything for era or for anything else. So we're taking couriers raw stats, like his ACE percentages, first surface, one percentage, et cetera. And what, okay. And sticking so that, and what's the full list of base stats you're using here? We're using uh ACE percentage, double fault percentage, uh, first in first one, second one, first return one, second return one. And then uh, non stat factors like uh, handedness, backhandedness and I think height. Okay. Okay. So, um, so I'm just going to give you, I mean, I'm just going to tell you what came up. I'm not saying that I agree with this or that this metric is right. Cause it's just a fun thing to do. Number one on the list 
was Gasquet. Wow. Which is really strange because backhandedness is a factor, but he was the closest comp. The second closest comp was Agassi. And then uh, another one-hander, Dominic Team. Huh. Followed by two that maybe are not so crazy, uh, with uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero and Tommy Robredo. Okay. Well, I, I, t- I like the, the team comparison, actually, because we were talking earlier, or maybe I was talking about guys like Chang and Ferrer who have the good backhands, but still play play forehands from that backhand corner for the other tactical benefits. And team is like that, but I think his backhand might be overrated. So he, he can look really good on that side, but he's definitely doing the smart thing when he's, he's hitting more forehands. So, I mean, I know that that shouldn't be captured really by the, the metrics you're able to use there, but I think I like that one best. Well, and, and maybe to, to a less extreme degree, because you don't think of him as, as having quite the same forehand is that, uh, Gasquet may be the same. I haven't looked at Gasquet's effect in this on his backhand, but I know for sure that we give more value to a pretty one-handed backhand than often is warranted in terms of its effectiveness. I think you may have talked to to uh, Carl about that with uh, Vavrinka, is that yeah. it can be an average backhand, but if it's a pretty one-hander, we're going to think it's the bomb. Yeah, uh, and even and, and, even if the shot itself is great, I think it's it's easy to overrate what it can do because I mean, obviously, the the effectiveness isn't just about you know if you're lined up how many winners you can hit with it, but it's so much more about movement to the ball and away from the shot. And I think one handers give up a little bit there too. Yeah, um, and doesn't I haven't seen Robredo play in a while. I'm trying to think about it. He 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 ran around his. Uh, backhand to hit forehands uh quite a bit so maybe that maybe it's not as crazy as i thought but uh my point i guess with that uh, apart from just sort of just making it interesting is that the we're not seeing after robredo i've got bjorkman blake and moya so we're not talking about a lot of people who are going to be on the top 128 in the tennis <laughs> yeah. 128 right yeah definitely not the that pre uh, it's wrong to say the post Sampras pre Federer era because they played each other, but the 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 pre Federer era is not super well represented, as people will eventually learn. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I did. I'm I'm surprised there aren't more current players who pop up because you would think you think the backhand handedness would affect more than height, for instance. Uh, and you're getting well that just depends there. on yeah that just depends on how how i set the algorithm so how much weight i gave to one thing or another um so yeah i'm sure that that could be changed i also have this thing where i i will take the uh uh i'll, I'll figure out the, the z score how far a player is from the say top 100 in his era and apply that to the uh say the top 100 stats for the most recent era and figure out what their sort of translated stats would be. Plug those into the same sim score, and then it, it it comes out with some similar players. But there, Agassi came out first, and Ferrero came out second, and then Nishikori. Then we see Gasquet and Team again, and Robredo ends up on the list. Huh. Um, if you take Hyde out, Delpo's in there. Okay. I mean, it seems like it's with the exception of Delpo, maybe also with the exception of Ferrero, you're getting, you're getting good returners. I mean, maybe his return, the, the, I don't know, the, the comparison of serve and return number or the combination rather of serve and return numbers is such that you don't get a lot of 
contemporary players with that numbers like that. Right. Yeah. Because his, yeah, he's got a pretty average first return and a, a really good second return. So, um, but you know, anyway, it's, it's kind of an interesting exercise. I had a, I, I way, way back, I did another sort of similar thing, except instead of, uh, measuring them on a sort of step-by-step basis, I, I kind of bend them up and put them into five bins and, uh, effectively those same categories so that a player like, you know, at the top of the, who had the best ACE percentage would get an A and the person who had the most favorable double fault percentage would get an A and the worst would be like a, I think an E or an F. I can't remember. It was basically grades and you do this across. And so somebody would have like a code like A, B, B, C, D, F or something. So I tried doing that in the SIM score too. And uh, there actually Delpo came out the most similar to Courier, although nobody was really what I would call truly similar in that, that one. Anyway, it's kind of an interesting exercise to think about. Um, um, so in one way, I like that he's unique. In another, when I see those, uh, see that list, I don't see a lot of people that would justify my visceral reaction when I saw your preliminary list that careers should be uh, significantly higher. Well, that's the, the other trick about this list is, I think you mentioned this earlier, that when you're, when you're comparing people outside of the very top of the list, like the, there are, we're talking about small differences. I'm not going to say on this podcast where Chang is at, but I am joking when I say Chang is number one, he's not even in the top 10. Um, and if you're comparing like, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> let's hope not. Um, I mean, we'll see. I, I'm gonna, at some point, I'm going to go back and watch that underarm serve, and maybe that'll sway me. But I mean, we were talking Vavrinkin and Shikori. Like, obviously, I'm making a choice there. I'm putting one in front of the other for a reason. But the difference between even 128 and 107, which is where we were talking about now, like, it's not a big difference. I mean, if if you took the 22 that I've is that right? 22 that I've published so far, and just randomized them. It's it's not going to be that different, and it, it, it's not to say I don't stand behind the order that I've I've published. But we're talking about players who are pretty close to each other in a way that you couldn't do with the top twenty. If you if you jumble up the top twenty, you're going to get something really really wrong. But that's not the case, and I don't think that's going to be the case until I don't know. Maybe we get to the top half of the list. I mean, I think when you see the players in the seventies, they'll be obviously better than the players in the one twenties, but. Uh, even then it's not a huge difference. It might be not be as big of a difference as the difference between like the seventies and the fifties or something. It's the, the list gets a lot more stratified the closer we get to the top. So Curry, go ahead. I was go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, if you had to guess, would you expect the tennis one twenty eight to have a uh, similar steeper, more gradual pyramid than say the uh, official rankings? Oh, you mean like the, the point scores well, on the ATP rankings? Yeah. Well, you know, it, you know, there's at least a, a general thought that the rankings are a pyramid so that the gap between, you know, 10 and one is a lot bigger than the gap between 20 and 10, which right. is yeah. basically what you've been describing with the, the 128. Just wondering if you uh, have any feel uh, based on what you've seen so far in your list about whether that pyramid will be similarly shaped or will it be more of a, a gradual come to a point more gradually, uh, more sharply, probably not more sharply. I would think. Yeah. I think it, I think it's flatter just because 
you have the the top players from every era. So if in most and maybe not most years, in a lot of years, you have something like recent Djokovic, where you have one guy who's so clearly ahead of the field. Um, and if you combine men and women, maybe you have two players who are tied in what the number one men, man and number one woman who are clearly ahead of the field. But when you combine a hundred years of men's tennis and a hundred years of women's tennis, like let's just throw some names out there. If you have Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, Tilden, Sampras, Jack Kramer, I don't know. Um, we can throw in some more. You can differentiate them and, and maybe there's a right way to do it. But when you're taking all their peaks or their best five years, then they're all going to be pretty high. So it's kind of like you're taking it's kind of taking like you're taking a lot of Djokovic's and throwing them in the same list. So the number ones are all, maybe they're similarly better than the number twos com- comparing it to what the ATP list looks like right now between number one and number two, but you've got five or 10 number ones. So they're all pretty tight up there. So it's, it's I think it's a lot flatter, but that's an interesting comparison to make. I didn't think about that at all. Yeah, I, I think you're right because you're basically taking what otherwise, let's if you took the rankings pyramid, you're lopping off the very top of that pyramid and then spreading it out. Yeah. So it should be, yeah, it should be uh I, I would I would expect it to be flatter. I don't know why I had this image of taking the lunar module off off the top of the Saturn five. Wow. Now we're really, really going far afield. Maybe even there's a pun in there. I'm not sure. Um, what I thought you were going to ask, which I'll turn around and and ask you is what do you think the, I I think we're talking about power laws here. Like there's some exponent that governs like how, how sharp the curve is. Um, they're all, they're all governed by power laws. Just the power is different. Um, and I think the same thing is true with the baseball 100, which is Joe Posnanski's book that all my listeners have probably heard about right now. Cause I talked to Joe Posnanski a couple months ago and, I mentioned it pretty frequently. He did the, a very similar project for baseball, which inspired mine. And yeah, tons of similarities, same idea, just different sport. Um, but what do you think? Is the, is the curve sharper for tennis than it is for baseball? Huh? Oh boy. That's, uh, you mean generally or in the books? Well, I mean, in the tennis 128 versus baseball 100. Let's I think assume the- that Joe is 100% right in his list and I am 100% right in my list. I mean, you, you don't know what my list is exactly, but you, you I mean, take whatever order you think is right for the top 10 with, you know, Djokovic and Martina and Steffi and whatever at the top. Like, you know what generally what the list is going to look like um, compared to, you know, Willie Mays and Babe Ruth and Oscar Charleston at the top of, of Joe's right. list. Well, yeah. So I'm comparing list to list, not every tennis player in history to every baseball player in history, um, right? In terms of what the pyramid is. Yeah, uh, I mean that's well, that's my, my follow up question. Then you'll have to compare everyone in history to everyone in history. <laughs> well, my my gut is that the the baseball 100 is flatter, um, because uh, I think that talent pool maybe was deeper for longer, uh, and uh. And so to me, I mean, again, I've seen a preliminary version of your list. To me, there's more variation in, in your list than there is in the, the Baseball 100. Uh, it's also worth mentioning the Baseball 100 is not a straight-up ranking. There are times when um, right. uh, he deviated from putting people in order for, like, I think Joe DiMaggio is number 56 because of the 56-game hitting streak, not because he was the 56th best, best player, which he was 
far ahead of that. So yeah, Jackie Robinson but, was um, 42 and then he, right. he skipped 19 because of the Black Sox scandal in 1919. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know. The baseball seem, seems flatter, but I, I don't know if I can, I don't know that I can justify that. Well, I think, I think that's right. That's what I would say as well. And I, my gut is the reason is there's more different skills that can, that you're going to end up rating in baseball. So in tennis at any given time, let uh, set aside ties. Like, let's just say right now, you've got a clear number one man and a clear number one woman. Like, those are your number ones. That's it. Everyone else is quantifiably worse than that. But in baseball, you've got, I mean, maybe you could say Jacob deGrom and Mike Trout are the obvious number ones. I mean, the fact that I don't know tells me they're, they're not, but <laughs> But you could you could look at the the wins above replacement list and say this is the best pe- batter, this is the best pitcher, and be done. But it's that doesn't really tell the whole story, especially the way Joe or any baseball historian is going to look at it. You wouldn't say Babe Ruth is the clear number one and Ty Cobb is a clear number number two on the same scale. I mean, it feels like they're different kinds of players are on different kinds of scales, and that means that you have. You're, you're rarely going to have a clear number one, even among batters or even among pitchers. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, that I, I think that's right. But I, I do think that adding in a completely different skill set with the pitchers versus batters alone accounts for, for some of that. I don't know that catcher versus first base means anything uh, because the defensive war doesn't really uh, usually carry that much weight for most players, but but I think the batter pitcher uh, distinction is, you know, you've got, they're almost playing two different games. I mean, they aren't obviously it's the same game, but they have completely different goals. Right. And then they're, the skills are independent of each other almost entirely. And you can even say the same thing about defense. Like you're rarely going to have someone be a, a defense first player who's going to be near the top of one of these lists, but it's, it's somewhat independent. So I think there are some players on Joe's list who got there by being I mean, with a lot of their value coming from defense. Well, Ozzie Smith obviously is the the obvious one, I would think. Right. I forgot he was on the list, but yeah, he's, he's in there. So yeah. The, and I guess I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, analogizing. Is that a word? I don't even know. I'm, I'm comparing um, <laughs> the, the, the fact that we have men and women who are mostly independent of each other, meaning you can have two simultaneous number ones with baseball where you can have two simultaneous number ones in batting and pitching, but you at least have defense, even if you set aside the fact that the, like you say, the talent pool is deeper for longer. I guess the counter argument is baseball careers are so much longer. Like you could have a new tennis number one every three years in some eras. Um, And I don't think that ever happened in baseball, but maybe that's wrong too. I don't know. Well, yeah, I think, I think you're right about, about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I the, the, and again, that, that would come back to sort of the algorithm too, um, also, because I, I think in any straight up, and I don't think um, pauses rankings are algorithmic based, but yeah, they, they certainly... started that way, actually. He worked with Tom Tango to oh, okay. build an algorithm. I mean, I know he tweaked it a lot, not even with the, not, not just with the, the, sort of playful ones like we talked about before with Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio. And I know he changed it a little bit, but, but there's at least some algorithmic basis there. Um, 
yeah, I forgot what point I was going to make. So sorry, uh, sorry, <laughs> I lost, I lost my, lost my train there. Um, oh, but, I, but, uh, I, I, oh, I know why I lost it is because you mentioned tango, and I was going to ask you about this. Uh, I think it was last week, maybe the week before. So this is uh, Tom Tango is a sort of a, a prominent, maybe at this point the most prominent, uh, active uh, baseball analytical person. He's actually a, a sort of in charge of some of the more advanced mes- metrics that baseball puts out at this point. And on uh, Twitter, he's Tango Tiger. Anyway, he posed this question in, in connection with baseball, uh, which I thought was sort of the reverse of what we tend to do with uh, finding peaks and career lengths. And he said, what if you, and this is in the context of baseball, what if you took out the player's best four years, how would they look? Took out their best four years. Um, And I thought, well, in tennis, maybe that should be two or three because tennis careers are not as long, top players' tennis careers are not as long as Hall of Fame baseball player careers are. Um, uh, yeah. So how do these players look? Some of these players look, if you take out their best uh, two or three years. And the reason it was particularly relevant, I thought to this conversation is I thought, well, Courier's is not going to look very good. Yeah. Courier's is not even in the conversation anymore. I mean, I don't know what it means. I don't know yeah. what it means that he, it, I don't think it changes whether someone's in the tennis 128, but I do think that before someone gets sort of too far ahead of themselves, getting indignant about where a player might be ranked, you might, also ask, well, if you took out a couple of good years, where would they be? And then they, they don't, they don't look quite the same. Uh, and then we could, if we were so inclined, ask that question about uh, Ash Barty. Yes. Well, I was going to go even one step further. I want to, I, I do want to come back to Barty since you mentioned her and I guess she's in the news a little bit right now, but the, the name that I've came, never heard of her, never heard of her. <laughs> the name that came to mind when, when you brought up this concept is one of the, this is the player I looked at the most as I was changing the, the algorithm as I developed it was Maureen Connolly because she's, she's near the top of all sorts of all time lists because she won everything for a few years. And she just, she, she, I don't think she was undefeated at a slam for two years or something. She didn't, she only went to Australia once, but, um, but nobody beat her for years. But then I think when she was 19, she was in a motorcycle accident and that was the end of her career. So her career is three good years. I think I haven't looked at it, the details in a while, but we're talking about a small number of good years. So I mean, with Courier, if you take out four years or even three years, he's not in the conversation, but you know, he's, he's a pretty good player. Maybe you remember him like David Wheaton or something, but if you, if you take out Maureen Connolly's best three years, then she wasn't a tennis player. I mean, she was a junior who then went to college and hung up her racket. And that meant, I mean, every step of, of updating the algorithm meant Maureen Connolly was bouncing around where you could make an argument that she's close to the top 10. But then if you have any kind of longevity component in an all-time rating, she rates really low in that. I mean, it, it's the fourth or fifth year of a player's career. Her value is zero. Uh, it's, and, and she's in there somewhere. I guess you'll all eventually find out where I ranked her, but it's, it, it's one of the toughest because the difference between her career, her peak value and her career value is so enormous. And that's going to come back to what you were talking about earlier with the perception of grand slams having so much importance, because I don't know where you got her ranked, but she, I, what she have seven, seven I think, slams. I think seven, seven and no losses. Right. I don't think did she lose enough. 
I mean, she basically might be for three years, so I don't think so. I think she's seven zero in 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 Grand Slam finals. So it's possible that wherever you have her ranked is going to you know uh, magnify sort of the distinction between the Grand Slam success and and your ranking even more. Uh, I guess uh, favorable to you, at least from the standpoint of having to deal with Twitter comments, is that most people won't know anything about her. <laughs> except what Although you that, tell them even that's tricky because the, the closer we get to the top the more people know than i guess the, the you you phrased it well earlier that people only pay attention during the slams they only know what players did during the slams and when you think about tennis history if you if i bring up you know adrian quist with his couple of australian titles in the 40s okay he won slams but people don't really know that they don't know that name period but if you're looking at players it, historical names that have any meaning at all to contemporary fans, they are the people who won a lot of slams. So I think a lot of people do know Maureen Connolly's name. Um, maybe more by, I don't know, a factor of 10 over some of the other players we've been talking about more. And I don't, I mean, I don't know whether that's right or not. Like, I, but I feel like people will think, oh, she's obviously one of the all time greats. Therefore, she shouldn't be ranked where you have her. But I guess we'll find out. I'll, my, my pushback will be our, um, our, a randomized control trial. Yeah, I, I I know her name, and I and I've heard her called Little Mo all the time, uh, but I I can't really I can't really tell you anything about her. I mean, most of what I know about her is what I think Chris Everett is sort of an admirer, uh, and so in commentary, I've heard Chris talk about her a few times. I'll, I'll be honest. This is, it'll be interesting to see if, if this is what anybody else thinks, but in my lack of knowledge about her, her, I'll tell you what I, my impressions were before seeing that she won seven slams uh, was that she was kind of a novelty. And that when I hear a little Mo, I think, Oh, cute, small, played some good tennis. Okay. Whatever. Everybody liked her. So I, there's obviously a lot more to it than that. And, and all of that will be illuminated in your article. In fact, that makes me <laughs> think you should illuminate your articles uh, the, way the, monk, the way the monks did. Uh, but <laughs> you, you probably have a monk-like existence trying to write this Tennis 128 anyway. Uh, so, Well, I mean, after, I mean, after two years of COVID lockdowns, we all do. Yeah, right. right. Uh, but anyway, so... Uh, yeah, I, I think people will recognize her name, but I don't know if, if, if it'll light a fire, uh, the way maybe, uh, some, even Nishikori and Vavrinka did. Well, I'm going to be purposefully, um, I can't think of the word. This is a, I really set that up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be not, I'm going to be mysterious here. We'll go with mysterious. Um, the person right behind Maureen Connolly is more likely to make people mad than, uh, than Maureen Connolly will. And I think I might have you back, Jeff, to talk about that one. Oh man. Don't get me started on that one. I know who that is. I'm not going to say, but <laughs> so every, it, this is, this is months away at this point, I guess I'm kind of giving away my Maureen Connolly ranking. This is months away, but, but Jeff will be back. And I think he will have stronger opinions on the player in question than he did on, on Jim Courier. I don't think a few months to think about this question is going to, to mellow his perspective, but well, I, I will be armed with counter arguments by then. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be defeated, but I, I will, uh, I, I am, I will try to be open-minded about it. I mean, I have already thought about it quite a bit and we had a little bit of a 
email uh, back and forth about it uh, a few months ago. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll look at, I'll, I'll look at some other things. I'll read your article. And we probably shouldn't talk about this too much for my listeners who don't know who we're talking about right now and won't for several months. Um, right, right. Does, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but it does, um, it does. I'm building, I'm building the suspense. People are thinking, Oh, they're, they're going to fight, fight, fight. There we go. Yeah. You and I are known for our combative record uh, podcast recording <laughs> constantly in each other's stories. You, you remember when we were I'm so kicked bad out about of, this one, we were, we were kicked out of Roland Garros because we just couldn't stop arguing about which qualifying match to go see. <laughs> yeah. That was a tough day. French police. Oof. Uh, I forget. So, yeah. We were with some other people who were shocked by us wanting to watch someone. I can't remember who it was. Oh, we were with Edo. Um, yeah, we were with Edo, uh, and yeah. he did not share our interest in watching women play tennis. Yeah, there was someone in particular. Oh, I think we wanted to watch Alexandrova, right? Didn't we watch Alexandrova? I think we watched Sasnovich. Sasnovich. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's uh, you can't go to the French Open and not watch Alexander Sasnovich. No, you can't. No. This is this is getting even more inside baseball than inside <laughs> baseball. Um. Okay, last last question with with some bearing on the Courier Week era stuff and some some bearing on the mysterious player who's going to make Jeff angry. Um, so I tried to strike a balance between the fact that we you can only really compare players to their own era, and the fact that there are eras that are stronger than others. And I I asked Carl this question when when we did our podcast about Stan Wawrinka. What I was trying to get at that I don't think I communicated very well. I was wondering, okay, Stan was at one point the fourth or fifth best player on tour, but he was probably never above number four. I mean, you could probably find one of my ELO ratings that says he was number three for a week sometime, but he was basically number four, number five at his best. There are a lot of eras where a number four, number five player doesn't even make the qualifying rounds for the tennis 128, but Stan obviously does. Nishikori, to me, obviously does. There are other players we'll see from this era who are still to come on the list. Um, but that means that you have a pretty, you have a pretty big swing from one era to the next. Some eras where someone who's maybe number two doesn't make the cut other eras where someone who's five or six does. And I wonder, like, do you think that's right? I mean, is, are that are eras of tennis history that different that someone can be, let's say peaking at number five or number six and still be one of the greatest players of all time? I think it could be the case. I think that part of what you're describing and, and the effect that it has on the ten, tennis 128 is not so much based on the the algorithm, the ELO algorithm, or the mix of peak and career that you've used for the tennis 128. But and you can uh, certainly correct me if I'm wrong, or, or you probably do disagree with this, but I. I believe that ELO has effectively been developed or maximized or uh, tuned um, to its predictive quality in terms of um, actual matches. How would one player fare against another player, which is, I think, largely contemporary. I don't know if that's ever been tested. Well, there's no way to test it of actual results of Courier versus Federer. But I, I think do Federer think there... Yeah, I think so. But most of the matches anyway, I, I would I would think Courier would win at least one. It depends on how many times they played. Uh, 
Uh, if they wait but, until Federer's healthy again. <laughs> <laughs> He'd win right now. Uh, I do think that there's at least the possibility that because Elo is tuned to predictability that it, it doesn't necessarily take into account sufficiently that the player played at the level they played against the players that were put in front of them and achieved what they achieve, achieved during that era. And they were number the fourth best player in their era. So therefore they, you know, quote unquote, must be the, as good as the fourth best player of, of the current era. I do think there are differences in era. I do think there are differences in the strengths of those eras. That's true in all sports. Uh, it's been measured in various ways, uh, league strength in baseball over, over time. Uh, and the same th- things have happened in all those sports with respect to Hall of Fame voting or rankings or uh, et cetera. Uh, but I, I, I do kind of in the back of my head, and I don't have a solution for this, so I, I, I'm not really crazy about making a comment when I can't think of a better way to do it, but I do think that there may be some room there uh, that, that ELO isn't picking up because it's focused on predictability. Uh, and I could just, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm probably not articulating it very well, but, uh, well, I, but I think some, it, I, I have some it, idea of what you're getting at, but I'm not sure I understand what exactly do you think ELO isn't picking up the differences between eras? Uh, well, I think it's, for instance, um, it, it's insular, right? It's it's uh, Elo is being generated based on who you played and who they played, and 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 so if you have a, I think it is picking up on the weak eras, um, but I don't think it picks up the concept that whatever era you played in, and and it, again, it depends on what your your tennis one twenty eight is if it's like who would beat who, or, you know, uh, who are the, like, literally the best tennis players, which I think is probably what you're getting at, then I think it's fine. But I do think that there is at least room for argument, at least when you see a name on the list and where they should be, whether they should be somewhere else, that the fourth best player in any era is as good as the fourth best player in any other era. Even if the era was weaker, they, they could only do what they could do. Um, but if they're the fourth best player, couldn't they, by definition, have done more? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, because, because what, well, and, and the reason I don't know is, and again, I'm not being definitive about this. This is just a little sort of lingering thing with me, but uh, like in your article about Courier. So um, he, he he's playing different, very good players. He's basically terrible against Sampras, but better than most people are against Edberg. Um, so even if you just took, take even Sampras out of the equation, he's, he's different, right? You take any, any, you take Edberg out of the equation, he's worse. Um, so some of it, I mean, it, it is just the mix that you got. It's the, the hand that you were dealt. And I have no problem saying that you rank where you rank among the hands that you were dealt. But we're always saying, or you're always here, or at least in people's minds, I think we think, well, when, you know, well, uh, someone makes the quarterfinals of a slam and they didn't play anybody, obviously 
they're not gaining as much in ELO, but they boot, they beat who they were supposed to be. They did what they were supposed to do. And I think you got to give some credit for that. You don't have to, I'm just saying in your head, you can easily give some credit for that. It might not be picked up by a formula that's geared towards predicting who would beat who. I'm not saying that's fits in with the goal, with your goal of the tennis 128. Uh, But I think it, it could be something that when someone sees a name on the list and doesn't think they're placed in the right, right spot might be a, a bit of an intangible factor. And I think Courier might be one of the guys that kind of feels like the guy on that list. He's to me, one of the big four of his era. And so how is he not like, I realize why he's not with the Federer Djokovic's and the dolls, but um, you know, how could he not be one of the best you know, 100 players of all time. Uh, right. I'm just sort of explaining why I think there might be a, a, a room for argument there, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with the algorithm or that it doesn't take that into account. I just, I'm not, I guess I'm not, I'm probably not one of the people who is sold on ELO as a, um, as a, a metric for all purposes, I guess. I realize it's, it's the best that we have. And I haven't thought it certainly haven't thought anything better and, and it's really, really good. Um, but there could be another 5% of something that it's not picking up. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm not going to go to the wall and say that it's, it's perfect. Cause it's like, like you say, it's really good, but it's missing, it's missing some things. And part of it is like you say, because it doesn't, I mean, it, it can't capture the matches you don't play. And I guess the, the reason why I'm not con- as concerned about it for the players y- you're talking about is because like, yes, maybe you get to the quarterfinals of a slam or even the finals of a slam cheaply. And like y- you brought up Ash Barty before and we haven't circled back to Ash Barty. She's a good example. Like she, she didn't get a lot of ELO credit from winning this Australian open because she didn't play anybody really that good. Um, somebody, somebody sent me a message on Twitter a couple months ago. I think maybe it was right after the Australian open that, there was a mistake in her ELO because her ELO rating at the end of the Australian open was, I think a couple points lower than it was going into the U S open um, after. And in that time frame, she went something in one, like 10 and one or 12 and one or something. Her only loss was at the U S open to Shelby Rogers. And it's not wrong. Maybe you might think it's wrong. Or you might think it feels off, but her ELO went down a little bit because she went 12 and one against people. She should have gone like, 12.2 and 0.8 against like they were not strong opponents at all and someone as good as ash barty is should have should have beaten them all or at least beaten 12 of the 13 so elo had it right before with her 2185 or whatever rating and it stayed there for good reason and we don't know what would have happened if if ash barty had played sabalenka and Sviantek and osaka back to back to back in the last three rounds if she had won her elo would have gone up and Maybe that would be right. And if you look at other eras, I think it's a lot worse. I mean, I, and I, one of the toughest players, maybe as tough as Maureen Connolly to rate is Suzanne Longland because she was undefeated for like six years. Uh, and she was winning all these matches like 0-1, 1-1, 0-0. So we have no idea how good she was. I mean, with Helen Wills, she played a few matches against men and sometimes won them on even terms. So we have a little more of an idea of how good Helen Wills was, at least relative to men. but we have no idea how good Suzanne Longland really was because there was no competition for her then. Um, and that hasn't really been true of anyone else since then. So, so at that point, 
I don't know how to rate those people. I mean, I know Stephanie Kowalczyk has, has used game level ELO. So you get more credit from a six love, six love win than a six, four, six, four win and so on. And maybe there's some value there. Uh, I haven't found it for contemporary tennis, although she found a slight effect in, in her research paper about that. But if you're looking at someone like Courier, you're looking at a lot of seasons that are like 50 and 10 or 48 and 10 or something. And sure, maybe you're lucky or unlucky with a single draw, or you you would have done better against a, a tougher draw at one tournament. But if you were better, you wouldn't have gone 50 and 10, you would have gone 54 and six. And maybe there's some luck in the surfaces you run into people on and how you feel on those days. But I just feel like it, unless you're basically undefeated or close, Elo is pretty much going to capture that. Um, so, I mean, do you, is that slightly convincing or is there something more that you're getting at that I'm not addressing there? Uh, no, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I, I just, um, I just think sometimes when ranking across eras that, that, I mean, we don't have a way to know whether Elo is doing a good job with that. I understand why it might be doing or probably is doing a pretty good job at that. I just think that the, to me, the underlying basis for ELO and the predictability uh, of the matches is maybe not a hundred percent aligned with um, the player's value, I would say. Um, um, But I think it's as good as we've got and probably as good as we will get. So I'm not complaining. Um, I think the only point I'm making is that, and it just kind of goes back to the thing I said at the beginning is that I don't think anybody is asserting that a person's, uh, a player's position on this list is the end of the argument. Um, If anything, uh, part of the fun of sports is, I mean, yeah, everybody gets something different out of it. Part of the fun of it for you is doing this and me too. And part of the fun of it for a lot of people is just arguing about whether someone is number 12 or number 14 or number 107 or number 121, um, or who doesn't make the list at all, which, you know, people are still waiting to see if they're, I I'm fully expecting any day now to see Cole Schreiber. <laughs> yes. You got it. Philip Cole Schreiber on this list, Davey Lopes on the baseball 100. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, trying to get all the people who are like 200 onto the top 100 list is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alex Gruskin on his podcast tried to get me to give him number 129 the other day. He's like, I can't tell you 129. That would, that would be a spoiler because you, whoever you think might be 129, like they could be anywhere in the seventies or eighties or nineties. Um, That's so true, yeah, yeah. Th- to your point, I said the exact same thing in my, I think the in- in- introductory paragraph of my introduction to this whole thing is that, I mean, I think tennis needs more arguments like this, not fewer. And I, I am as sick as anyone else about the same arguments about the the big three right now or debating Serena and Margaret court be based solely on their, their slam total. But I mean, like you said, people love to debate number 12 versus number 14. Nobody's actually doing that. Like I, I, I don't hear people debating, you know, Venus Williams versus Monica Seles or Pancho Gonzalez versus Boris Becker or something. Um, and I think those would be super interesting. I think people need to know more about the players 
before they do too much of that. And hopefully I'll make a little headway in that direction. But you know, I, I wish some of the energy that was directed towards Roger versus Rafa versus Novak was also put in other directions. And I didn't, maybe not the direction of Stanislav Renka versus Kane Shikori, but some <laughs> other directions, even if it means disagreeing with the order that I put them in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what struck me, this is just something that I discovered recently. I was reading through an old, um, you know, this uh, International Tennis Weekly, and I think this one was from 1981. And these are uh, publications that were, uh, it was an internal publication of the prior version of the ATP. I think it called itself the ATP, but I don't think it was the ATP in the form or the governance structure that, that, that we have now. It was an internal publication. It was printed on old newsprint, giant sort of tabloid. I mean, I, I don't know how big it is. It's probably three feet tall and two feet wide, these big tomes that they keep at the ATP headquarters. But anyway, I was looking through one of those from 81. And uh, one of the first articles I read used the term big three. And it was uh, Lyndall, Connors, and McEnroe. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, now when we say big three, every time I see that on Twitter, I'm, maybe I should ask uh, which big three we're talking about. Yeah, I think, I think I've seen the term used in, in other areas as well. That's fascinating. Um, and I mean, I, like I mentioned, people would call Tomas Muster the king of clay. I think there was a king of clay before that. So yeah, that's, I think that there's a lot of historical context missing from, from these arguments. Although people do go back as far as McEnroe and Borg. People are ready to make that, make the Federer versus Borg or Borg versus McEnroe or whatever, whatever one of those permutations you pick. But much well, it probably back- would have been, sorry, it, it probably would have been the big four in that, uh, in that publication, except that that was the year that Borg had decided he just was too depressed to play. I mean, because like every other article was, eh. Borg feels like he's going to sit out Wimbledon. Uh, Borg feels out he's going to sit this out. And then there was a big art. All the arguments in the in the uh, publications were about. Um, I guess he was going to be. I forget. I, I I guess he wasn't meeting his mandatory minimums, and he had been injured for a little while. And he was arguing, "Well, I'm I'm going to play, you know, seven of the eight mandatory tournaments, but I was injured, and the ATP was taking a hard stand on that." And uh, players lining up on one side or the other about whether Borg should be able to play a minimum of tournaments because he just didn't want to play and so forth. Um, but otherwise, it would have been a big four. Well, we we should probably wrap this up since we're crossing the one and a half hour mark here. But we did, oh my gosh, we did bring up Ash Barty, and we have not circled back to actually say anything about Ash Barty. So as the one topical thing that we've mentioned in this entire ninety minutes of talking. Um, I mean, do you think Ash Barty should be in the tennis 128? <laughs> I had her at 129. Did you really? Okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I, yeah, I, I do. I do. Um, I can actually see some parallels with Courier's career. Um, you've got what? Three slams versus four for Courier. Uh, not as many finals. Real short career. Um, Courier, what was his last real good year? 95? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, and he was born in 70, so 25 years old. She's 25 years old. He didn't retire. He hung on. But um, yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, you know, I, she was number one for longer. She was also number one during, you know, the weird COVID rankings. Uh, not that this, she wouldn't have been anyway. It, it's hard when it's so fresh to to figure out where she would fit. And I'm not going to try to to put her in any particular spot, especially not knowing where everybody else is. 
but yeah, she's, I, I think she's top 128. I, I feel like um, it's a, it's such a weird feeling because you usually don't like lose someone right at the top of their game, especially some of the, that I think most people have such positive feelings about some people might find our game a bit boring. I don't, uh, but who are these people? But you what see them with those people, but Do you them. see them, right? You see them on Twitter talking about how she's boring because she hits a slice or something. Uh, but uh, such a, like a great, like sports person to watch too. I mean, just, I mean, from everything, her approach to the game, her attitude, I, I mean, it's just awesome. So, you know, I just, my immediate feeling was almost like someone had died in a plane crash, you know, <laughs> because you just don't get to watch her play again. And she's at the top of the game. And normally when that happens, like if Federer retires next year or this year, or whenever he does, well, they've been used to the fact that he hasn't been around for a, a couple of years. And while it will be traumatic, especially for some, uh, you know, it, it won't feel the same as someone going out when they're like really at the top. Uh, so, um, I see, I can see some parallels to courier. I can also see her being, uh, uh, ahead of him. Um, well, if she's in, she's definitely ahead of courier. If she's in, yes. If she's in, um, we don't, we, we don't want to give away any secrets. No, all I can tell you for sure. is She's not between one Oh seven and one twenty eight. but yeah, I, um, not only is she, does she have the three slams? I'm not sure if there's anyone on the list or sorry. I'm not sure if there's any historical players with three majors who didn't make the list. I keep meaning to check on that stuff. I know there are some with two, but I don't think there are any with three. Um, and there probably shouldn't be. I mean, it would be pretty tough to be a triple major winner and not be good enough to make this list. It's I can conceive of it, but it'd be hard. Um, but she's also, yeah, like you say, she's a, a clear cut number one, not really for the time period that the rankings give her credit for, but I mean, very much at the top of the game for a good stretch. And I mean, I'm not sure whether, whether my ELO algorithm quite gives her enough credit for that. Um, but it definitely gives some credit for that, regardless of, of the strength of the era. And I'm, I'm sure we'll be debating the strength of this era for a while, um, partly dependent on what happens now with without Ash Barty and with who knows whether Serena comes back or whether Naomi Osaka plays a full schedule. There's so many question marks right now. Um, or if Ash Barty comes back in a year and wins another <laughs> three majors, that's, I guess that's another big if, but, but yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a big loss. I mean, I, I know you, you also have plenty of favorites pretty far down the, the ranking list. So maybe it isn't as big of a loss for you and I, as it is for some people, but Still, I mean, I can't imagine who these people, why people think that her game is boring, especially given what the the sort of the the median WTA playing style is these days. Like she's one of the few players who's who really deviates from that and does so successfully. So that's I mean, to me, that's the biggest loss. I mean, her, her obviously her personality is a credit to the game as well, but the fact that she was so good and did things differently, like you you rarely have someone who fits both of those characteristics. So. We're lucky to have her for as long as we did. Yeah. Uh, I was looking at the difference between her current ELO rating and Sviantec's, and it's not that huge. Um, but I guess in my head, I, I still saw perhaps a bigger gap. I think if you ran the numbers on those, those two ELOs, it might be, uh, might be predictive of, what, 55% for Barty in a match against Sviantec. For some reason, I just feel like there would be uh, – uh, I, I would take the Barty side of that. 
Uh, yeah, and also that's um, I I think that number. I'm not going to say that number is wrong, but Iga gained a lot of points from Indian Wells, um, and for a long time, Barty had almost a 100 point lead on the on the field, which I think probably matches your intuition and probably also my intuition a little closer. This is the this is the first time I've seen in a while that anyone's been so close to her that the the top of the women's rankings have have even really had a credible number two behind her. Yeah. And I, I, I like Sviantec's game. I just, I don't think it has matured quite to the point where I have confidence that uh, she will beat everyone that she's supposed to beat given where she is, whether it's Elo or, or her actual rank where, where with Barty, I felt pretty good that she was going to be in every match uh, and would beat most of the people that she was going to beat uh, or supposed to beat. And uh, we would only lose a handful of, uh, of the others. So, um, but, uh, but I can see Sviantek having, having that position for a while. I can also see how much uh, pressure affects uh, achieving that, that ranking, especially in the way that she's achieved it. She, you know, you don't know what psychologically she's thinking in terms of, did I, back my way into this by accident. We saw what happened to Medvedev in his first match after he was number one, and he openly talked about the pressure of being number one. So uh, it's a, it's rarefied air. Not everybody can, can handle it or handle it the same way. Yes. So in a few years, we can talk about whether Iga has played her way into the 128 or maybe Medvedev. Actually, Medvedev wasn't super far off. I guess I'm spoiling it now saying he's not in there. I don't think anyone expected him to be, but he was not that far off. Iga's a little further away since she's yet to turn 21, but that, <laughs> yeah. could, that could be an interesting conversation in a few years. If, if she does play up to, I mean, how she looks now and how much she could still improve. Um, but yeah, like I said, we've gone a little longer than planned. Maybe this isn't the record longest tennis abstract <laughs> podcast episode, but it's close. So um, even though we are talking about people setting records, we probably shouldn't set any ourselves. So Jeff, thank you very much. Yeah, sorry I talked too much. Uh, uh, I, I, I hope I wasn't really the guilty. previous record. I hope I wasn't the previous record holder too. That would be embarrassing. I think the previous record was the was the Knights of the Federer Roundtable episode I did with Carl oh. Sullivan and Edo when we all were together in person. Um, I don't think we're going to touch that one, although I don't remember. Maybe we are. I don't know. But no, I'm Is it? I'm not blaming you. I was the one asking the questions. The days of Camelot. Yes, the days of Camelot. So you can, listeners, you can read what what Jeff has to write about at um, hiddengameoftennis.com. Some of the some of the metrics he's talked about are on the blog and some others as well that are worth keeping tabs on. Uh, of course, I know you all know about the Tennis 128, but check in Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays for pretty much the rest of the year. Apparently, I'm doing this thing. So 106 more players to unveil with another one coming tomorrow, Saturday, March 26th. So thanks everyone for, for listening and thanks for reading the tennis 28 and we'll see you next time.